All right, so I'm going to ask you all a very important question. I want you to raise your hand if you have your Christmas tree up yet. Um, Michaela's hand shot straight up. All right, okay, okay. Separating the sheep and the goats here. Got it. We are one of those. I've been holding off Shannon for as long as I could, and this weekend was, was it. I couldn't, I couldn't hold her back anymore. So the holiday season is, is quickly approaching. For some of us, it looks like it's here. <laughs> Over the... <laughs> I love preaching with Michaela in the room. <laughs> Over the next few months, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas, New Year's. Each one of us has traditions and customs that are woven into these special days. We know what to expect. We know what we're going to eat. We know who we're going to be with. The disciples would have had that, that same experience. And even though they didn't celebrate the, the exact same holidays that we do, they, they had their same customs and traditions. They celebrated the, the Jewish calendar found in Leviticus 23. But the same things happened the same old way year after year until Jesus. So this particular year, around right about the year 33 AD, all of their holiday traditions were upended by their Messiah. But not just upended, but fulfilled. On Passover... Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. One day later, on the day of unleavened bread, Christ took the leaven of sin and hid it in the ground, buried it in his tomb. And on the next day, on the third day, the Feast of First Fruits, where the Israelites would bring the first of their harvest to the Lord, that was the day that Christ triumphantly rose from the grave. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the firstborn from the dead. And in our text this morning, in Acts chapter 2, we find the disciples on another holiday during that fateful year. This is the Feast of Weeks, also called the, the Day of Pentecost. This was seven weeks or, or 50 days after Passover. And this, this sacred day was a, a springtime harvest festival to celebrate the fullness of the harvest that God had given. And on this particular day, the disciples would see quite the harvest indeed. Just like on the other holidays of that year, Jesus was not going to disappoint. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and read what happened on this day. We'll be in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now what the Spirit says to the church. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. <laughs> and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <laughs> now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? <laughs> How is it that we hear each, each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Well, that's our question for this morning. What does this mean? So let's pray again for the Spirit's help. Father, we thank you that we can come to you through your Son in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that we would receive your word as what it really is. Not the word of men, but as the word of God, which is at work among us. So Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts through this text this morning. We do ask it in the name of Jesus for the glory of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. As we all remember, in 2016, Tennessee experienced one of the worst natural disasters in its history. The Great Smoky Mountain wildfire affected over 16,000 acres of land and damaged or destroyed over 2,000 buildings. The combination of high winds and fire was utterly devastating. <laughs> Authorities believe there were multiple causes of the fire. Initially, uh, some teenagers lighting matches and throwing them on the ground, and then later discovering a second cause, which was, was several downed power lines. But either way, it is both amazing and terrifying how the smallest flame, just a spark or a match, can cause such a destructive wildfire. In our text this morning, I believe what we're witnessing is the ascended Lord Jesus, in a sense, lighting a match, dropping it from heaven, and lighting the world ablaze. Not with the fires of destruction, but with the fires of refinement, of healing for the nations, of the promised Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecost was a one-time event. Just like the work of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas or Good Friday or Easter, Pentecost is a once-for-all aspect of the work of Jesus not to be repeated again. But nevertheless, it is a one-time event with an ongoing effect for the rest of human history. This was a day that ushered in the last days, the new covenant era, and the age of the Spirit. In short, the Spirit has come. And the world will never be the same. This is what we'll see throughout this book. The church is going to be very active in this book. But all of that activity is empowered and energized and animated by the Holy Spirit. Now, In these 13 verses, we see the varied excellencies of God the Spirit. While we will spend all of eternity rejoicing in and exulting in the glories of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in this text, for this morning, I want us to focus on five of the Spirit's attributes or, or His actions, namely, that He is the Spirit of unity and glory, He's the Spirit of holiness and life, and He's the Spirit of battle. But to understand this, we have to go back into the Old Testament. 
We need to be like those disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 and have our eyes open to see Christ in all of the scriptures because if we don't, we'll never truly understand what's happening in Acts 2. On this marvelous day, so many Old Testament streams converge and come together into this great river of Pentecost. So first, let's look at the spirit of unity. Now, one of the more maybe controversial topics in these verses is the gift of tongues. Uh, but as I was uh, talking to Kevin Fowler about this text earlier in the week, he said it, it is the gift of tongues, but it's also kind of the gift of ears because they were hearing it in their own language. So this passage, it's not really meant to teach us about the gift of tongues. If you want to learn about that, study 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But rather, what this is, is an amazing milestone in the history of redemption. Luke's narrative of the day of Pentecost is an exact opposite of a narrative found in the Old Testament, the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 10, we find what's called the Table of Nations, the the 70 nations that descended from, from Noah. In Genesis 11, we find out how these nations came to be as Moses kind of rewinds the story and gives us some background. At this point in history, the whole earth had one language, and mankind used this oneness to begin a unified revolt against the God of heaven. They started construction on a tower. The word used there is a word for a temple structure in the ancient world. Babel, that's the origin of the future enemy of God's people, Babylon. So you could call this building the Temple of Babylon, which if you've been reading your Bible, you know that is not going to go very well. Now, the express purpose of this building project is for mankind to make a name for themselves, to glorify and deify mankind over and against its creator. Today's secular humanists would have fit in perfectly with these ancient pagan humanists because there's there's no difference. Man is at the center of their lives. But their plans were ruined. When God came down, he he inspected their, their project and he brought their work to a halt. He scattered the peoples and confused their languages so that they could never unify in rebellion against him again. But in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless those nations that he had just cursed. He had a plan to bring blessing and salvation to the nations through Abraham and through his seed, which is Christ. And this is what we see happening on the day of Pentecost. This is what's happening in verses 5 through 11. There were men from every nation under heaven. And those men were hearing the mighty works of God in their own mother tongues. In the minds of the people, these uneducated, backwoods, blue-collar Galileans were preaching in practically every known language found throughout the Roman Empire. So what's happening here, what's happening is God is reversing the curse of Babel. Pentecost is the anti-Babel. It's the unbabbling of the world. Where the sin of man brought 
disunity and division. The Spirit of Christ is bringing unity and harmony through the gospel. Now, this past weekend, we had a biblical race and justice training. This was the perfect text to come after that training. The only hope, the only hope in our world for racial unity, harmony, reconciliation is found in the gospel. It's found in the spirit. Pentecost is what makes racial reconciliation possible. He unites all these people, different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, and he unites them. Acts is going to keep using this phrase, they're of one heart and one soul. That can only happen through the gospel. And even among our church, if there is conflict, if there is bitterness, Pentecost makes your unity possible. Pentecost is what allows us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Ephesians had told us. Also, as Ephesians taught us, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And now the nations are streaming into the new Jerusalem, the people of God, just as the prophets had said. King Jesus, through his spirit, is building his church throughout the whole world, a church made up of every tribe and people and nation and language. The tongues of fire that we see in Acts chapter 2 will continue to break down barriers to the gospel throughout this book and throughout history. (laughs) For instance, in Acts chapter 10, when many of the God-fearing Gentiles were converted, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and Peter heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. When Peter retold this story later on, he said that the Spirit fell on these pagan, heathen Gentiles in the same way it did on the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost. The gospel fire that started on Pentecost is burning across nations and continents, and it is unstoppable. He's the spirit of unity. but He's also the spirit of glory. (laughs) Excuse me. The spirit of glory. The imagery of fire falling on the disciples in verse 3, it should should bring our minds to something. Again, verse 3 says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That imagery should bring our minds back to the glory of God filling His sanctuary throughout the Old Testament. In Leviticus 9, the Lord sent fire to show that his glory had filled the tabernacle. Same thing happens in 1 Kings chapter 8. The glory of God, the presence of God filled that temple. And his presence was so heavy that the priests couldn't even stand. In the same way, on the day of Pentecost, the Lord Jesus filled his new covenant temple with his glorious presence. That is, with the third person of the Trinity himself. Notice that the Spirit doesn't come to the physical temple, which was just down the street from the disciples. He came to these 120 disciples in an obscure upper room. Again, we know from our time in Ephesians that that we, God's people, are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are living stones 
in a living temple of which Christ himself is the cornerstone. This was not like Babel's temple, a place of rebellion against God. This is Christ's temple, a place of worship to the one true and living God. Worship, when we come together for worship, we are gathering together in God's temple, not this building, of course, but when the people of God gather, we are on holy ground. That's why this year we have had people telling us that, that gathering together for Christian worship is not essential. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Worshiping together as God people is the most essential act that we can do. We are gathering together as living stones, coming together to be a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Now, in, in our text, again, I want to look, look at verse 3. It says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So th th this fire that came, it was resting on each individual disciple. You think, what's going on here? What is this imagery meant to show us, meant to teach us? And what it's meant to teach us is that God's purpose is to spread his presence from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the world. This is just a glimpse into God's eternal purpose in Christ. In the beginning, God created a temple, a meeting place between God and man. It's the Garden of Eden. Adam was appointed as a priest over this temple to tend it, to keep it, and ultimately to spread it from Eden to the ends of the earth. The temple of God was never intended to stay in one location forever, forever, whether in the garden or in the tabernacle or in Solomon's temple. His purpose was always to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the seas. And he does that as he spreads his temple disciple Christians all throughout the world. This is exactly what he started on the day of Pentecost. It's what he's continuing to do even now. And it's what he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus when the dwelling place of God will be with man. But today, do you realize that you have direct access to the presence of God? You don't have to go to the temple. You are the temple. We are the temple in these trying and uncertain times, do you comprehend the reality that your king is Emmanuel, God with us, the one who has given you his spirit to be with you and in you forever? He has not left us as orphans. He has given us the helper, the comforter, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of glory. He's also the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness. The Feast of Weeks, or, or Pentecost, was not just a harvest festival, but it was also a celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Moses gave the Ten Commandments 50 days after that first Passover, which would have been the first Pentecost. So God's people celebrated this momentous event on every Pentecost since. So if the first Pentecost marked the giving of the law on tablets of stone, the final Pentecost fulfilled that pattern 
with the Spirit writing God's law on human hearts. Just as Moses ascended the holy mountain and came back down to give the law, in the same way Jesus ascended into heaven and came back down through his Spirit to implant God's law within his people. This was one of the promises of the new covenant found in Jeremiah, where the Lord said, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In the old covenant, the law was external. It was outside of us. In the new covenant, the law of God has been internalized. In the old temple, the Ten Commandments were stored in the Holy of Holies. But in this new temple, the church, the commandments of God are supernaturally engraved into the lives and souls of God's people. If you're a Christian, know that Christ hasn't simply forgiven you from the penalty of your sin. Though he has done that. Praise God he has done that. But he has also freed you from the power of your sin. The grace of God is both a forgiving grace and a transforming grace. When Christ saves a sinner, he saves them all the way. Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost. True holiness was never attainable while the law was outside of us. But now that the spirit of holiness has come, he has written his law within us so that we can start to be holy as he is holy. Do you realize what has happened to you in the new birth with the spirit writing his law? within you. Do you realize what's happened? We've said that the Spirit has come and the world will never be the same. The Spirit has come and you will never be the same. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes. There is no sin that can have dominion over you. Because of Pentecost, you can have victory over sin. You can truly live a life of obedience and glorifying God. Because of Pentecost because the Spirit has come. Not perfectly, of course, but truly. We see this promise also in Ezekiel 36, another promise of the new covenant. Verses 26 and 27 is where the prophet says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, those words from Ezekiel 36 are illustrated in the very next chapter. And that illustration comes to life in Acts 2. So our next point that leads right to it is that the spirit is the spirit of life. He's the life-giving spirit. The day of Pentecost didn't just have the imagery of fire, but also the sound of a rushing wind. We see that in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This should bring our thoughts immediately to Ezekiel's valley of dry bones in the 37th chapter of his prophecy. In this chapter, the prophet is given a vision of a boneyard, a valley filled with bones, and those bones were very dry. The Lord asks him if these bones can live, to which Ezekiel replies, Lord, you know, only God knows. 
Then the Lord tells him to prophesy over those bones, to preach in that graveyard. And as soon as he does, there's a great sound and the spirit who is the very wind and breath of God breathes life into those dead bones and they stand up resurrected, living and breathing. Just as the spirit hovered over the empty, chaotic waters at the very beginning and brought life to the world, just as he hovered over this valley of dry bones to give life to the slain, just as he hovered over Jerusalem and brought 3,000 to new life in a single day, just so, even now, he hovers over this dark and dying world, bringing life to lost sinners. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. If you are here, if you are tuning into the live stream and you don't know Christ, this is what is offered to you. The Lord Jesus died and suffered the consequences for your sin and bore the wrath of God. And three days later, he rose from the dead so that he could give you life. The problem for all mankind is not that we have just occasionally sinned and done what's wrong. The problem is that every one of us is born in Adam. So every one of us is born dead in our sin. And the only way to find true life, life now and life for eternity, is to come to Christ. He can take out that, that dead heart of stone and put in a living heart. He can do that for you. Pentecost makes this possible. And Christian, is there someone that you have given, given up on, you've given up hope for? Someone that you think they're so hardened to the gospel I talk to them about Jesus and I talk to them and I talk to them and, and nothing happens. Of course it doesn't. They're dead. So were we. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. He is the spirit of life. Ezekiel's vision of this valley contains these words in verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, or the spirit came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Notice the spirit. He didn't just bring to life God's people in general, but he brought life to God's army in particular. And that brings us to our fifth and final excellency of the spirit, which is that he is the spirit of battle. There are two books in the Bible that seem to have a special focus on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. One book is this. It's the book of Acts in the New Testament. The other book is the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And in that book, the Spirit is constantly coming upon the judges or the deliverers of Israel. And when that happens, things get a little bit out of hand. As Peter Lightheart put it, when the Spirit comes in, in Judges, things get broken and people get hurt. For instance, the Spirit came upon Othniel and he went out to war. The Spirit led Shamgar to kill 600 Philistines with an ox goad. The Spirit clothed Gideon and his 300 men to defeat the Midianites. 
The spirit rushed upon Samson, and he tore a lion in pieces with his bare hands. He struck a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, and he killed more Philistines in his death than in his life. When the spirit of God comes, the enemies of God are defeated because he is the spirit of battle. This is the same spirit who descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then immediately led him into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. After securing the victory over the evil one, he continued to cast out demons, heal the sick, and raise the dead, all by the power of the Spirit. And like Samson, he would do more work in his death than in his life. This is the same Spirit that has been given to us, his church. John the Baptist had said that the Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus said this in Luke 24, 49. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the language of judges. It's battle language. But again, from Ephesians, just a few weeks ago, we know that we battle not against flesh and blood. We are not called to pick up a physical weapon and attack our enemies. No, we are called to wield the sword of the Spirit. Again, Peter Lightheart gives us some great insights. This is a bit of a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, Jesus receives the Spirit to finish what Samson started, to take out the enemies of God, which are the enemies of the human race. By the Spirit, he follows Samson's path, defeating more enemies by his death than in his life. The same Spirit who empowers Jesus to fight devils, battle disease, and break chains rushes onto the disciples at Pentecost so they can carry on his mission. Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Filled with the Spirit, Peter preaches repentance to Israel and confronts Israel's leaders. Powered by the Spirit, the apostles deliver the demon-oppressed and heal the sick. Stephen is so full of the Spirit that he is irrefutable in debate, and his success provokes murderous outrage. (laughs) There is a difference between the Spirit's work in ancient Israel and in the church. This is important. There is a difference between the Spirit's work in ancient Israel and in the church. The church is a company of new Samsons, armed not with jawbones, but with weapons that destroy fortresses of speculation and take captives for Christ. Samson killed in the power of the Spirit, but at Pentecost, the Spirit of Jesus equips the church with the power to raise the dead. Christian, you have been given the spirit of battle you have not been given a spirit of fear. This year, there has been much fear. Pentecost should take that fear away. We have not been given a spirit of fear. We have been given the spirit of battle, and you have been called to go to war. When the gospel is preached, lives are changed, souls are saved, and even nations and kingdoms eventually fall to their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this happens in some of the most remarkably unremarkable ways. At the end of this chapter, after thousands are saved, we see their life together. And they're just doing very simple acts of faithfulness. They're meeting together. They're praying. They're reading God's word. They're breaking bread. 
They're having a meal together. They're taking care of each other's needs. And this simple act of faithfulness is ultimately what changes the world. You see, Luke adds a little phrase there, and day by day, they were adding to their number those who were being saved. Day by day, Satan's kingdom was being plundered just by these simple acts of Christian living. Take courage. Take courage from this text. Tell others about Jesus. Pray for boldness and open your mouth to speak about Christ. Proclaim him to your families, to your children, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your leaders, and to the nations. Don't worry about your reputation. It's very clear that the Spirit doesn't care. Right? They said, they're, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. Right? What made them look drunk? The Spirit. He didn't care about their reputation. And ultimately, when they were mocking, saying they're filled with new wine, they were right. The prophet Isaiah had said, Oh, when the Spirit comes, the land will be dripping with new wine. The joy of the Spirit will come when the Messiah comes. And that's what they were experiencing. When you are empowered by the Spirit, the world might think that you've lost your mind. But we can be fools for Christ's sake because he loves to use the weak things to shame the strong and the foolish things to shame the wise. This seemingly foolish act of just preaching the gospel and obeying Jesus, living together as a church, these seemingly simple and even foolish acts is ultimately what will conquer the nations. Think of it this way. Now, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. And that is amazing. Oh, how we would love for that to happen today. But I want to kind of flip the perspective on it real quick. The world population at the time of Pentecost, the world population was at about 300 million. That's a little bit less than what's in America today. So these 3,000 or so believers, they made up about 0.00001% of the world population. This small group of people, even though this amazing thing happened at Pentecost, if this had been it, just an you know, exciting day, then it fizzled out, we would have never heard about it. Later on in the book of Acts, Gamaliel is going to say, if this is a work of man, what's going on in the church, then it'll just fizzle out. Right? It'll stop. It won't go anywhere. If it's a work of God, we shouldn't get in the way because there's going to be no stopping it. So this small persecuted minority within about, a, about 300 years had, had conquered Rome and the emperor himself bowed his knee to Jesus. Now, we're 2,000 years later, the gospel has spread to billions of souls on every continent. That little spark of Pentecost is burning. That match that Jesus dropped out of heaven is still burning. So Christian, though things may look dark, 
there is much encouragement to be found in Pentecost. Christ is ruling and reigning. He is building his victorious church. He is grafting in every nation and every language, reconciling the world to himself. He is spreading his true temple to the farthest ends of the earth. He is raising a dead humanity to new and eternal life. He is the victor and he will have the victory. This fire is spreading and no one can stop it. So take heart. The spirit of unity has come. The spirit of glory has come. The spirit of holiness has come. The spirit of life has come. The spirit of battle has come. The spirit of God has come. And the world will never be the same. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your precious Holy Spirit. Empower us as a church. Fill us as a church. That we might be faithful to make disciples of all nations. To be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. And even here. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who has realized this morning that they, they don't know you. That you would lead them to new life in Christ Jesus. Pray that you would strengthen your body. You would equip us for the battle that we have ahead. We thank you so much for giving us your spirit. It's all glory. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.